This is Audio Gyan and I am your host Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. This is the 230th and 5th anniversary episode of Audio Gyan. For this special episode, we have a special person who sits right at the intersection of art and education, which is where hopefully Audio Gyan also tries to live. Today we have Manjima Chatterjee with us on Audio Gyan. She is a drama explorer, teacher, and occasional writer. Well, occasional is a bit of understatement after she has won the Hindu Metro Plus Playwright Award in 2013. Manjima teaches drama and has served as is serving uh, as a head of arts program at Shivnadar School in Noida. Welcome, Manjima. Uh, it's a real, real honor to have you on Audio Gyan. Thank you so much. It's lovely yeah. to be here. Awesome. Uh, so this audio can we'll try and unpack uh, some of your thoughts, philosophies, and try to understand the importance of theater, plays, drama, and in general art uh, in the education space. So I've come up with few questions, and uh, yeah, I mean, as I said, it's in the right in the cusp of education and theater or performing arts. So we'll be having like conversation which is like intertwining in between. Let's see how does it unfolds. So uh, you have spoken at length. Also, I was listening to another podcast of yours, uh, Movement and Me podcast by Natya Mandalam. You mentioned how did you got into this journey or what were your influences in the beginning. But just to start the ball rolling here, uh, if you can also briefly share how did your passion for theater and then storytelling and then education got ignited. Okay, so that's that's actually a lot of things. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, very briefly. Well, I was always interested, I think, in uh, storytelling, and I got introduced to drama very early on. While I was still at school, I was always performing, and uh, that's that was my first introduction. But I also started watching pretty religiously around the time I was in high school, and that was quite uh, quite rare even then. I mean, in Calcutta, because while there were a lot of people from colleges around, there were not that many people from schools in Calcutta, at least, you know. Mm-hmm. in the in the smaller towns and suburbs yes definitely quite a few but not so many in calcutta unfortunately so i think people kind of started noticing the fact that this very young girl was around and i was given the opportunity to watch some absolute legends at work including badul sharkar whom i followed uh, for a while like a fan girl uh, just kind of you know watching whatever they his his troupe would put up and then um, of course when i came to uh, delhi to study um, at stevens and the shakespeare came into my life and uh, you know um, everything else alongside uh, but uh, i kind of lost touch with theater for a while because i went into editing and uh, right after college I, i wasn't sure what to do with myself and my principal packed me off to this place called valley school in bangalore it's a krishnamurti school and uh, that was the first time that i really you know kind of took education as a space seriously because at school you know i mean you are the receiving and you don't really think about it as at least i didn't lots of people suggested to me that i might make a good teacher but it never occurred to me that i would so uh, i i really started taking it seriously while at uh, valley school and then of course i came back did my masters in sociology and in the meantime lots of things were happening i was writing i started to kind of get back to writing on and off was working as an editor went on to have a couple of kids and while uh, you know along the way i was at home i was interested i've always been very very deeply interested in history and um, very very kind of passionate about some things some aspects particularly of bengal's history uh, very very checkered very interesting things that i've never been able to get out of my head so i really wanted to kind of dive in deep understand what makes the land tick and somehow when i came across the bengal famine it was just something that hunger as a as an idea and as something that that we have seen a lot of in this country and in the meantime i was quite closely connected with the ngo world reading uh, the works of shantrez amartoshen and mostly i think the a direct connect with the works of p sainath okay. which really kind of galvanized me and that's how eventually uh, mountain of bones and two men on a tree came to be but of course along the way a very important step which i completely missed out i don't know how 
was that uh, around 2006, when I was least expecting it, uh, I was kind of writing bits here and there. And uh, that actually, for the first time, being a part of writer's block in 2006, that really gave me uh, a sense of that I could be a writer. I hadn't seen myself as a writer until then. I saw myself as a performer. I saw myself as maybe an academic, but I didn't see myself as a writer. So first that was the first time. Yeah. So that's that's basically how it came to be. And uh, then sometime around 2012, while I was researching Mountain of Bones, I was offered this uh, job at Shivnada School. Mm-hmm. And I was I was very, very you know shaky about the whole idea of doing a you know a full-time job. It just didn't seem like the right thing. But yeah, sometimes fate has some things in store for you. Yeah, I just yeah. found a place that that I really kind of fell in love with, and uh, yeah, it was possible to do a lot of things in there. That's that's what got me here. Since then, writing and teaching and some amount of academic reading, writing also. So it's been um, a good balance. Yeah, yeah. Some is yeah, and and shorter or whatever, like an understatement. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm quite fascinated because even I was going through one of the articles in Krishnamurti School. Uh, like I I follow some of the work uh, of J.K. Krishnamurti, and and even a glimpse of such a legend touches you somewhere, and and you are on another planet. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so like, can you can you share some bits of what happened in Valley School, which sort of moved you or or gave you a direction if that happened because it's a very powerful setup right so can you give some that's a, that's a very interesting word that you picked up uh you know Kedar, when i think about education i think one of the things that has always drawn me towards drama in education in particular is the notion of power it's because you know the student in as a student in school i never felt powerful but mm-hmm. in in valley for the first time I started to see that it was possible to have power, even as a child. It was possible for the child to be taken seriously, you know, for the child to be at the center of the learning process. And it was mind-blowing for me because I came from a very traditional school system, you know, where as a student, I just had to receive. And, you know, even in college, I mean, college really kind of, college (laughs) gave me a huge complex because I was from this, absolutely nondescript school in Kolkata. It's, it's not a nondescript school, but I mean, in Delhi it was, you know, nobody had heard of it. Mm. And I was in this, I was in St. Stephen's College, which is like the snobbiest of snobbish places that could be. I really understood what it is to be, you know, a small fish in a big, big pond. Mm. And uh, yeah, and, and along with that, this whole thing of everybody spent all of all our professors spent all of college telling us how much we didn't know so yeah I mean I think never in the education process until I went to Valley had I actually thought that it was possible to be powerful as a learner to have any kind of power and um, it was it was really quite something you know mm-hmm. and of course later much later when I was, you know, participating in this uh, in this program, this postgraduate program called TEST, Theatre for Education and Social Transformation. It was curated by Maya Krishna Rao. Uh, it was run by Shivnada University for a couple of years. Brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant program. Uh, when I was there, uh, I remember coming across this text called um, The Ignorant Schoolmaster by Jacques Rancière. Okay. And uh, that actually talks about how transactions in the learning space can happen without anyone needing to be more powerful than the other or more knowledgeable than the other, that it is possible for the learner and the teacher to learn together, you know, that it could be a process. So these were things that I, you know, not even, it didn't even occur to me. Plus, uh, Valley has a very, very rich arts-infused learning space. It's not just, you know, they have a wonderful art village and it's not just the art classes that happen there. It, It just really infuses itself into every part of the learning space so it was just brilliant I mean I this is the first time I it actually you know I thought wow you can learn physics in the sculpture room how do you even wow. do that yeah it was just brilliant mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah, so I mean, I'm fascinated because I also did an interview with uh, Neelkan Chaya from uh, SEPT and, and he used a very interesting word is, which is said knowledge is explosive, right? And really can't be contained in walls, books, or libraries. So how are like, the next question which I wanted to ask you is that from there till your entire, uh, as you were working uh, in the arts uh, program for Shivnadar, like, you must have reflected back or thought about how can theater be a tool for teaching children, especially anything complex, right? Uh, so can you share some bits of it? And also in that interview, you mentioned about Dorothy Heathcote's. Heathcote's, yeah. Heathcote. Yeah, yes. I was uh, intrigued by that also. So first, if you can just give me some instance of how do you arrive at teaching some complex stuff to children through education, uh, through theater, and then maybe double click on Dorothy. Wow, okay. So, you know, the thing is that um, the thing about learning is that learning is something which should blow our minds. You know, it is explosive in itself. The very design of it, the very, the possibilities it opens up, right? For anyone. I mean, for me, I consider myself a learner more than anything else. I go into a learning space, maybe as a teacher, but I go in to learn. Not because I have something very major to share with the others. There is a design, yes. But I went with every expectation that I'm going to come out of this having learned something. So um, for me, theatre is not and never was a tool for learning anything else. Theatre is a pedagogy of itself. Theatre is also a curriculum in and of itself. I mean, I've learned more history through theatre than I've learned in any academic class, you know more history, more geography, more anything. I mean, the first time I understood some very important concepts in mathematics was when I was reading proof. So, <laughs> you know, it's not a... I think the thing about theatre is that because it's so complete as an art form, it mm. has knowledge in its content, its design is so, is so adaptable. There are so many ways in which theatre can come to be. Frankly, I mean, the way I look at it, I think all the things that happen in this world are, are drama. Mm-hmm. And it's it's when you understand that, it's when you walk up to someone and say hello for the first time, that's drama. What are you doing? That, you know, everything from your body to the smile on your face to the energy transfer that happens when you look at the other person in the eye, that's drama, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what you retain. How many times do you actually remember what you said, you know, between two people? Mm. You remember the feeling you came away with, right? Mm. When you say drama, drama, is it is it in a stricter sense or more philosophical sense? Because so in that context or? <laughs> no, no. No, no, I mean it. I mean it in an absolutely concrete way. Okay. Because, you know, mm. frankly, that's what it is. You know, when we look at pedagogy, for instance, when we look at teaching mm. and we look at everything that goes into teaching. One of the things that we look at very, very closely is what is the teacher like when they come into the classroom? Mm. You know, 80% of the times, maybe even more, the student is paying closer attention to who the teacher is than what the teacher is teaching. Mm. Mm. Right? And that is, it sounds like an overstatement perhaps, but trust me on this. I've tried Mm. it out. This is drama. It's drama. It's how that teacher is taking the subject across, how they're setting the stage, how they're setting up the conflict, how they're arriving at the resolution. Wow. That's the drama. You know, that, that is what makes the hook. And I think um, where drama in education comes in is it gives, it puts particular structures into space. And that's what we do when we take it into class. Mm. So just to kind of, and of course, I mean, the very big thing, coming back to the earlier thing that we were talking about, the very big thing that drama does is it it just completely, you know, lets you play with the sense of power in the classroom. Sometimes the teacher is more knowledgeable. Sometimes the teacher is less knowledgeable. Sometimes the teacher is absent. And you have to figure things out for yourself. And I mean, not, not absent in a physical sense, but, you know, the teacher just kind of withdraws and says, I don't know. I'm not here. You have to figure it out for yourself. And in so doing, you have, you present a challenge to the students, which they... You know, it's, it just gives them something to bite into, something to get into, to engage with. You see the sparks coming into their eyes, you know, it's just, it's fascinating. Mm. So if somebody asks me, 
can you teach physics through theater i would say yes and no no mm. because i cannot explain formula through theater i cannot but what i can do is i can firstly give the entire lesson a dramatic construct to enable the students to engage mm. at another level i can help the students to think about what does it mean why am i in there why am i studying this what kind of impacts can it possibly have where can i go with it how does it help me to be more human mm. and that is i think the the power of uh, of drama in education there are and that's yeah. what dorothy hetkar does to to double click on her <laughs> as you said yeah she just um, absolutely fabulous i think for me between her and maya krishna rao they just completely changed the way i learned to look at drama i was already on that path i was exploring some small things by myself but you know mantle of the expert or the various kinds of process drama the various roles and their registers and how they can be approached how a whole learning philosophy can be in place every step of the way how a teacher can reflect at every step of the way what's a good point to hold the drama and ask a question when do you step into the drama when do you step out of the drama what is a neutral body it's just so many so many things and she draws very heavily from stanislavski and method acting she takes that as her base of course i mean there are lots of other people there is boal there's we can't talk about drama and education and not talk about boal especially with the kind of work he's done with power yeah, yeah. and ken robinson uh, does he fit in the same uh, set like thing or uh, he's because i have just seen his yeah ken robinson comes from the other side he comes from the education space and he says okay let's infuse some arts into education Mm-hmm. and he's ken robinson is talking about all forms of the arts he's talking about developing the brain as a whole you know mm-hmm. so the thing is that they're both coming from a similar standpoint of saying that if you're going to be sitting on your backs you know with your with your back straight and your arms stiff and not looking here there <laughs> you're probably not learning you know this i mean you you and i we've gone to school where our teachers are constantly said sit straight Yeah. Look at me. Look at the board. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Half the time you're thinking of something else. You're looking at if there's a window, you're looking out of the window. If your friend is passing chips, you're looking at your friend. You know, you're smelling the food that's in the desk and things like that. So what what Ken Robinson and uh, Dorothy had to do is they say that you have to bring the body into the learning space. You have to mm. allow that to happen. you have to realize that we are whole beings and if if all of learning is only focused on uh what you can see and what you can read and if that's the only kind of learning that you value then you are doing yourselves and the planet a disservice and i'm mm. i'm a very strong proponent of that i completely agree with that because i've mm. seen this happen you know with the smartest the most book smart kids the way they feel free when they come to the theater space the way they open up the way they engage it's not something that happens in the in their you know it's just a very different way of being as compared to how they are in their classrooms not mm-hmm. just theater though it, this is true of music this is true of dance it's true of visual arts yeah what we have yeah. seen these kids do it's criminal to not consider that to not yeah. see how that can enrich their learning experience hmm in fact uh, that reminds me i think there was i had read somewhere or it was a running joke i don't know but teaching is like dieting you're teaching but you don't know whether the samne ka person is learning or not similarly <laughs> dieting you're doing yeah. but you don't know whether you're losing weight or not you're just dieting i don't know what you're doing it was a joke type but i want to just again slightly go deep into this that you said when to hold or when to stop the drama right so if you can just give more nuances about any particular instance or any particular example through which the students are not really engaged or don't get too much into the myth of the story or into the story so that they almost tend to neglect the facts because then it's a kind of thin line right where you are almost the way we were taught about mythical stories uh, i am sure there must be lot of underlying principles to it now 
sometimes principles are tough to comprehend so you you wrap it with like interesting stories but then the stories get forward right the the principle remains some fellacies so any any nuances there that you you can help share and uh, as in share and help us envision ki ye kaise handle hota see um process drama follows a very specific set of rules right mm. so you go into the drama with full awareness of the fact that you are going into drama and you do of course it's done through various ways sometimes the teacher will you know maybe adorn herself with a prop and uh, change into somebody you know so for instance i put a dupatta around my head and i'm playing a particular character when i take off the dupatta i'm back to being your teacher oh, and this is something that children understand right because you do that in front of them very consciously in a very aware way hmm. so children have actually all of us have but children are just more attuned to it a sense of fantasy which is very strong right so in fact the younger children get it more quickly the older children struggle to hold on to their disbelief you know so they'll say no no i know you are not this you are actually my teacher and then of course as the drama builds they will get into it but the younger ones will simply go wow you really came to our house the daughter of the moon is in my house mm-hmm. so you know it's that kind of thing of disbelief but Here's the thing we've done it uh, several times i can give you a few instances most recently we dealt with the story of manu and the fish in the context of climate change you know all across the world there are these stories about waters rising right noah's ark manu and the fish and um, you know in, in mythology when you study it you say oh dashavatar pratham avatar matsya avatar and this and that and uh, then when you look at it from the concept of uh, evolution you say oh of course life began in water but then it's also possible to look at the story from the from the context of climate change you can see the fact that the waters are rising and the world is drowning under it and then it makes you wonder did something like this actually happen in the past is this actually drawing from someone's experiences the fun of mythology is that it can adapt itself to so many kinds of interpretations right you can draw so many different things from it and that's also the danger of it a little bit Mm-hmm. because then you have people who will draw all kinds of ridiculous things from it yeah but see now what we did with manu and the fish was we did it as an interdisciplinary unit where there was a story that was told and then it became a set of questions that manu had which then drove the learning around and at the end of the learning unit the students had to answer some questions and offer some advice to manu now that's a prolonged drama engagement where um it's mostly storytelling led there is less of role play uh, there is less of uh, active engagement in drama another example is uh, so the idea thing that we did the climate change one was with break 6 but another example for instance is um where we picked up in grade 9 the economics textbook for cbse has the story of palampur which is a fictional village and i mean heaven knows how many palampurs we have in this country so it's very good so it could be of those palampurs so we pick up the story of palampur and the students they first study the demography of palampur they construct an imaginary map for themselves mm. where they immediately engage with ideas of who lives where and that's that's like an immediate kind of entry to so many things right you look at you look at social structures you look at caste you look at ownership so many different things that come in and the we immediately have that conversation so they draw a map of the village and then they study the demographics of it because they take some sample demographics they choose one mm-hmm. and then they distribute themselves into particular roles which they then play so that's when drama comes in we get them to actually practice the different stages of life imagine the different stages of life so they conduct their research they actually we give them videos we use resources like padi sainath's uh, padi is a fantastic resource that we can use as reference and we do people's archive of rural india it's a fantastic resource so they study images they read articles and then they play the lives of those farmers and then we take it to a conclusion where they have to vote as farmers for uh, not not as farmers necessarily but as farmers as artisans as landowners as landless laborers 
various uh, different groups that they are divided into. And um, they have to vote for a candidate and they have to vote on a particular issue that affects the village. So they actually study issues of marginality, of choice, of oppression, which are economic subjects and political science subjects that they're connected with. They understand the election process and they vote. And I, I mean, I would love to show you some of the writing that has come out of that, you know. Mm. It's really deep, rich, academic writing where students are asking big questions. And you this know, is so which, which uh, stu- like grade? As in like seven, nine, eight? Grade nine. Nine, nine. nine, nine. Okay, awesome. Grade nine. So our, our teachers were initially very, very concerned. Grade nine, almost a board class. Uh, academic time will go. How will we cover the subjects? And we discovered that they had covered, you know, in, in uh, three months, they had covered four chapters. And they didn't even realize that they had covered everything. This is our Wow, so so fascinating. Yeah, because when students get into the learning process, then they read the chapter and they understand. Mm -hmm. So they don't need to read the chapter with us because they're exploring those concepts through drama and discovering things for themselves. Mm -hmm. So the textbook doesn't allow them to discover anything. That's the problem. The textbook only tells you. But drama Mm -hmm. lets you discover things. Hmm. Drama opens up questions. And in this particular, you know, um, these generations that are coming to us now, curiosity is a, is a big problem because yeah. this overload of knowledge has made it very difficult for the students to be curious. Hmm. We have to find ways of retaining curiosity, building curiosity. So drama is uh, number one for us, therefore. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that you're, probably just fueling the curiosity in the right channel or the right way, right? Yeah. And and I keep reading quotes, so I, I generally tend to use a lot of quotes in my thought process. But like Einstein's even famous quote was there, right? So I, I never let go of the questions which I had when I was young. And that's the only secret. There's yeah. no other secret. It's just like Absolutely. You're constantly curious about it. In fact, I'm trying to just connect the dot here also, you being from Kolkata. I have made a small poster in my house of Ramkrishna Paramhans, where uh-huh. he says, uh, as long as you live, so long do I learn. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a great starting point, obviously. So talking about learning, uh, my next question was, uh, in fact, I was looking at one of the interviews with Varun Grover and he said, the interviewer asked him, Ki, Kaise likhte hai? Like, how do you write? And to that, his answer was, uh, you have to be at least curious or deeply interested in three, four things other than writing. <laughs> so on, on that note, I wanted to ask you this question that like for a playwright in you on and the educator in you, like, first of all, do you believe in this, that you have to be curious and deeply passionate about few more things than the core subject that you're dealing with or the core area that you have decided to specialize on? And then if those four, five things, what you really look forward to, I mean, this is going to help me just fuel my uh, interest in ha, chalo, ye bhi kar sakte as a as a no absolutely i mean I, I don't know whether i can generalize and say this applies to everyone but it definitely applies to me hmm. i think uh, creative mind constantly needs fuel and the curious mind even more so so i think it's it's really important that we engage with the world in as many ways as we possibly can. Otherwise, one would be an ascetic, not a playwright. But I think, yeah, for instance, I've always been deeply passionate about history. And uh, I also about uh, literature, particularly, um, I, I read a lot of science fiction. Mm-hmm. I love science fiction. I find it very, very engaging. Also, I think because I'm constantly curious about possibilities. So history, myth are, are areas that have always interested me a lot. I find a lot of relief in music. Music is my escape space. And uh, I'm lucky I come from a family which, is, which has a lot of music. And uh, even my, my partner and my children, they're all into music. So it's something which uh, I really, I mean, it. Yeah, I do, I do, that's the easiest way to say it. It brings me a mm. lot of relief. Mm-hmm. But have you yeah. given some thought that how so, does this help you reflect back on your work? I mean, have you seen any pattern, any observations key? 
आई नो देर नथिंग पैरल की ये पढ़ा इसलिए ये कुछ नहीं as a writer only connect you know and that's it i think i think my job as a writer is mostly to make connections and that's what um, these other fields also help me to do they help me to find connections and to be able to really link up with ideas with occurrences with patterns possibilities mm. so awesome yeah. yeah it's great because these are the keywords which i keep regularly using its link pattern and what i've figured out is it's almost you're trying to find out that abstraction and when you find something in some field you automatically see those two dots connecting are ye udhar bhi waisi yeah yeah you do cool. and sometimes it's weird you know you listen to a piece of music and you find resonance with it with some piece of literature that you've read yeah yeah you know and and it's impossible to explain how you made that connection but yeah, it's so, just there and you know it you know yeah, yeah. sometimes yeah. when you try and articulate also a lot of people don't get the connection also and you you no. really struggle hard to explain and uh, yeah you are sometimes ridiculed also i get that a lot of times yeah it's okay it's <laughs> yeah. yeah okay let's take a short break yeah we'll be right back Okay, welcome back to the show. So switching gears a bit and and coming to the uh, new education policy, I wanted to just uh, understand that bit also, and then we'll move on to the last part of your plays. But um, you have like handled arts uh, as program uh, for quite some time, and now you are like a curriculum uh, head at uh, Shivnath School. So, like, what's your view on the new education policy? I mean, uh, like, is it going to be good? Is it going to ride on certain old things that we have learnt? And जैसे मतलब मोदी जी ने योगा लाया है mainstream again, like evangelizing. वैसे is there anything that you have observed or going to be beneficial or maybe negative also? Certain parts will be negative for sure. Can you just share something about it? So the thing is that uh, with the new education policy that has come. it's important to understand that it rides on the shoulders of the national curriculum framework of 2003 uh, 5 okay right so the ncf of 2005 is the basis on which the nep has come to be um but of course it takes things further and it takes things in a different direction particularly in higher education it goes um strongly um in support of privatization which as somebody who has worked um in the in the ngo space for many years and also in the education space for many years now i strongly am against i cannot support privatization of education education has to be a state subject it has to receive state funding otherwise it does not work the thing is that um what they're doing and it's important to understand this what they're doing is they're bringing in uh 20th century skills 21st century skills which are important let's not take away from that it is important to cultivate those skills it's important to look at critical thinking creativity it is important to understand what is citizenship it is important to study all these things right and at the primary early years level at the middle years level those are great things to do so talking about elementary school right right up to say 13 14 years of age right the education that is that or should be was once upon a time guaranteed to every child mm. right which the government is slowly but steadily as we can all see making an effort to move away from now that is a very dangerous thing and the problem is that the approach to education which is much needed which is student centered learning which is uh, 
which should offer every student personalized learning pathways. That, under the present CBSE system, is very difficult to pull off. And the reason that it's difficult to pull off is that the teachers are not trained. The systems have been set up as factory systems. So you have to completely overhaul them, right? Nobody wants to put in the kind of effort, add the kind of manpower, do the kharcha that they need to do to actually make it happen. Mm. But they want to be seen doing it. Yeah, right? optics, optics is the biggest thing. Maximal, absolutely, as we know. In, the, in present times, those the, that's the only thing that matters. So they want to be seen doing it, but they're not doing enough. And frankly, much needs to be done at all ends, both in terms of, firstly, you know, training teachers. You want something to come into being from 2023. And you don't have teacher training programs in place to deliver the kind of program that you want delivered. So they're doing a lot of online training. They are, they really are. But yeah, I mean, it's, you have to see that what a teacher gets from an online workshop is not something that's going to help her run the class. Yeah, and she yeah. doesn't have, uh, or he doesn't have the kind of resources that the, uh, the training expects you to have. Most of the teachers, what are they working with? Yeah? Look at the reality. So it's a, it's a very difficult kind of a um, scenario which they have created for themselves. The intent, I will repeat, is very good. The yeah. overall intent is great because that's really where education needs to be and it's, it's where it's going worldwide, not just in India. But the difference is that worldwide, the transition is supported by the state. And in India, the effort is being made to let private schools, private colleges lead from the front. And that is always going to be a problem because... Private schools cater to an elite. You know, mm. schools like ours cater to like you know, less than 1% of the children who are actually going to school. Even the middle-level schools in the cities, the ones which offer training to their teachers, which offer support to their teachers, even they are not equipped in many cases to implement the kind of things that NEP wants it to implement. And certainly not by 2023. It's like around the corner. We're mm. already at the end of 2021. So... It's very complicated. Yeah. Mm. That's where it is. It's um, so at the one end, the teachers and the systems are not ready. At the other end, the university system needs to be rehauled to be able to accept the training, the way that CBSE is going into its final examinations, etc., the way it's redesigning the board exams and all of that. The university system is not ready for the students when they come in. They are still going by that. 100% cutoff system, which is ridiculous. I mean, you, it's crazy. How can you have a 100% cutoff? How can you call it a cutoff? Mm. But that's where we are. So the universities are not ready to receive the students who come out of the system and the teacher training institutes and the resource managing institutes are not ready to implement it. But CBSE wants to put it in place by 2023. So I don't know, unless they think some magic you know, the fairy godmother will come and wave a magic wand. So I don't know what what they're expecting. Hmm. But this is this is what it is. Yeah. So, as you said, intent is always right. Since I think last ten years, the execution has gone for like really bad. But like, is there like what if Jiddu Krishnamurti type few people? I mean, like obviously uh, those kind of institutes come up then, or that's not a possibility. The Krishnamurti schools have been practicing this kind of education for donkey's years. Correct, correct. No, so I'm saying like if, if the privatization are exposed to that, the, the people entering from that lens, from that side. I'm I mean, not sure I'm just, I understand the question. No, I'm, I'm just like looking at some ray of hope that the way people are trained or in Krishnamurti school, I mean, what if the privates take that approach? Then it will be good or no, it will still cater to the elite. See, Private schools will take that kind of approach and they can afford to. You have to understand, see a school like a Krishnamurti school will have 15 to 20 students in one class. Mm. Their students will come from uh, a range of uh, backgrounds, but mostly, I mean, if not economically elite, at least thought elite, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Right? They will not come 
from a place where the parent is looking at the child coming out of the school system and immediately turning into an earning member right kisko nokri mil jaye now the problem is that in the current state of affairs the kid comes out of the system and they're not equipped for the jobs that are available in the market right now so you have a lot of jobs that are going khali and you have a lot of youth who are jobless yeah. right because there is that mismatch is happening and they're just not equipped to learn the kind of skills that they need to learn right which is why the shift the conscious shift towards skills as opposed to knowledge building right to say mm-hmm. that a, that a student who emerges from the school system now needs to have the skills of learning on the job critical thinking needs to have the skills of being able to ask the right questions learn something new as they go right so that's not available to the schools mm-hmm. so matlab so what i gather is it's like the entire policy seems to be very reactive in nature it's not it's always reactive in india it's always reactive but see nep is doing a lot of good things it's it's also predicting certain things it's aligning itself with the right kind of mindset the problem like you said is execution right mm-hmm. so a few private schools can follow the krishnamurti model and say okay we want our children to be reflective we need to have one on one conversations with them we can't have 45 kids in a class mm. right because the teacher simply does not have the mind space to be able to cater to those children okay so let's cut down the class size to 20 25 kids and the private schools can get away with it because they can charge those few parents that kind of money and the parents will bleed through their nose and ears and they will still give it because of their child's education right but the not so big private schools the ones that are that don't have that kind of management or that don't have that kind of understanding what are they going to do they can't afford to not have 40 people in their 40 kids in the class now so they have 40 45 kids and they're going to try and drill the nep through their heads it's not going to happen what kind of personalized learning can you have when the teacher is going crazy and and it's one teacher and she's teaching eight subjects in five classrooms and each classroom has 40 kids and that's the kind of ratio you're working with so the poor teacher is going to go crazy and how will she fulfill the demands of what the cbse requires so we're going to fall back to people will fudge no that's what they'll do they'll fudge reports they'll say ki ye hua when it didn't happen they'll try to bribe their way past it that's what we've always done in this country we take the shortcut because there are just so many things so many factors that you have to you know you have to yeah. fight it's it's just the way it is so unless there is a complete rehaul of the way that government schools are run Hmm. so delhi government for instance is really you know it's something to look at because delhi government is doing that they are rehauling their schools they are completely changing the approach they are promoting entrepreneurship they are promoting curiosity questioning in their classrooms they are bringing in laboratory learning they are doing all the sorts of things in their happiness curriculum they have a lot of arts arts infused learning so they are bringing in all the elements of the nep but they're doing it with a strong intent and as a government they can do that right mm. they have the resources they have the uh, the power to take those decisions and they're doing it they're using it in the right way i don't see anybody else doing it but i don't really know very much about the other states i do see delhi doing it and so it's a great thing mm. it's one government that's at least not taking its hand away from education yeah. it's an important thing yeah i mean i i remember one audio gain with geetanjali kulkarni also a theater person and have been actively working for education and a lot of uh, stuff in the rural areas of maharashtra and uh, she was also i think of the same opinion where the government has to do it's not like good for privates to enter this space because she's dealing with children who have never seen crayons in their life like adivasi students who just go to school for the midday meal so yeah i mean it's crazy yeah yeah this is the truth because i mean so many schools don't even have loos you know they don't mm. even have toilets and i'm not talking about you know rural schools somewhere in the forest or something like that i'm talking about city schools yeah just 60 kilometers out not even 60 30 kilometers out yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah not even 30 kilometers out i'm talking about schools that are in noida noida is like a smart city and whatever else for the up mm. government uh the government schools don't have place don't have benches their their rooms are 
in terrible condition half the time the classes are being held outside the loos are not functional teachers don't come it's a huge tragedy where you know for the optics are very clear on yeah. what we want to show and the reality is so very different you know so execution is where the government always always falls short yeah hopefully with the skill program we have some executionist in the next 10 years let's see that's the only hope which i'm <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah yeah okay coming to the place part of it uh, which is the two men on the tree and mountain of bones unfortunately i have not read them or or seen them but whatever i've i've was just going through they seem to be very important plays so any reason that you can share why they were not are not performed yet actively in the indian theater none at all uh, i have you want to quickly just only... tell about the premise of it and maybe the listeners can infer why they are not <laughs> uh, maybe they they i don't know maybe the very dark place is <laughs> possible a <laughs> uh, mountain of bones is a satire it's a satire it's partly musical it is uh, it's a very dark play that's mm. it's certainly that bits of mythology it has bits of fantasy but over and above it's about hunger and it's about how the government and it's of course it's based at the time of the british government in uh, 1943 but uh, it basically casts a big um, question on all mm. governments and asks you know what is the intent so there is a war machine which is made up of people who are constantly you know working to feed the machine while they themselves are dying and uh, i mean there was a there's a big question that came from a from a story by manik bondopadhyay who was a bengali writer he had the story called why didn't they snatch and eat chiniye khaini kano so that's the bangla name and uh, in that story he postulates that when people are so hungry that they can barely keep themselves going they don't have the ability to fight so if you keep people famished they will do whatever it takes to survive and they will not fight you so one of the tragedies of the bengal famine was that um the crops failed but before that you know all reserves had been sent out of the state other things also happened along the way but when people were offered when you know when they were when the poor people were traveling from bengal and they were coming up they encountered estates which had food which had fruits on the trees mm. and they didn't they never raided anything they never looted anything they just came they walked in a mass and they came asking for food that's why manipur pandey says why didn't they snatch and eat why didn't they loot why didn't they plunder why did they just accept that hunger was their lot it's a deep question it's a, it's a big question and um, it it has offers some very uncomfortable answers so <laughs> in short i think the plays are very uncomfortable <laughs> maybe that's why i don't know maybe they're just very bad plays nobody wants to do them i don't know no 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 that couldn't be because now i'm going to read them <laughs> please do uh, i'd love to hear what you think yes i think what i can comprehend right now is because a very close friend of mine is right now in belur and he's been reading vivekanand for last 10 12 years and he's deep into philosophy these days and we keep chatting generally over the weekends a lot about like yeah i mean there are these nine volumes of vivekanand also which talk about caste which talk about different philosophies and stuff i think we as probably indians are too tolerant and maybe that could be one of the reasons i, I mean, don't know you know i was reading this uh, particular uh, piece i forget um, i think it was by shekhar gupta Hmm. when he was uh, following mamata around on her uh, you know on her re-election campaign and um, no as a as election campaign. sorry sorry when i say tolerant is considering the 3000 years civilization it's not the yeah, recent this, one this yeah. whole this whole thing of karma and everything but yeah. anyway coming back to the shekhar gupta story he he postulated actually that uh, the people who objected to the communists and were able to rise up against and you know overthrow that government and usher in the trinamool government were not very badly off 
It says that in our country, we have seen dire poverty. We have seen people eating rodents. Mm. We have seen people, uh, you know, eating whatever they could get their hands on. So what brought in Mamata was that the state wasn't in such a terrible state. Mm. It wasn't seeing the worst days it had seen. So it is an interesting kind of postulate, again, tying back to what Nani Pandupadha says. Just to be angry, there has to be a level of prosperity. It's an interesting, interesting uh, mm. thing to think about. And especially in the light of dictators that want to be dictators, what kind of misery can keep people in exactly the same position year after year? Ah, okay. <laughs> Probably not, not the kind of thing you want to discuss on your <laughs> podcast right now. No, no. Yeah. And especially the fifth anniversary episode, but I'm thoroughly, enjoy- I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. And okay, so so maybe on a we can conclude this on a happy note. The question is actually negative, but again, we briefly spoke about it. The the entire education system has been designed, or or at least from what I understand, is is always been is sort of set up in a way to make people obedient, to make students obedient, right? Your the marks were good. System. Yeah, the marks were given for good handwriting as opposed to what they are writing, or mm. or more disciplined. Uh, sort of workers, right? And then last 70 years, we have seen more engineers, obviously. But I think I think it is changing with probably like the pseudo-democratic platforms like YouTube and Instagram, things are changing. But like how how people like me and, and like-minded folks can engage in spreading the message that the future of the country or future of our economy is in the creative space. I mean, is... Is it first of all, and if yes, then how how can we like anything which you can share, uh, which will give that hope? Kick, huh? future is creative. Oh, the future is definitely creative, and in fact, the future is here. It yeah. is uh, the one thing that you know this uh, lockdown taught us was that uh, when it is left to people to figure things out for themselves, they find ways. So this mm. complete outpouring of creativity that the last two years have seen. Where you have, you know, everybody's dad and sister coming on to the, uh, coming on to YouTube and Instagram and everyone's a home baker and everyone's a designer and everyone's uh, singing and writing songs and it's, it's fantastic. You know what, what is really probably the way ahead is to really look at understanding how this creativity can be given a direction, how it can become a force. Because it's under dire circumstances, people fight back and people have fought back with creativity. It is uh, the more the world goes into unpredictable spaces, the more structured systems like the old system of education will struggle to keep up. Because, you know, are you familiar with Paulo Freire? Uh, No, I'm afraid not. Okay, so Paulo Freire was a writer, an activist, um, wrote a, a fantastic text called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. You must read it sometime if you if you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another text by a similar thinker called Ivan Illich. He wrote something called uh, Tools for Conviviality. Uh, they're both great books. Pedagogy of the Oppressed particularly uh, because he talks about this, this whole thing and we're coming back again to what we started with, which is power. I read an apocryphal story. I don't know whether it's true that uh, it was one of Freire's disciples who actually worked on making the internet possible because he felt that it would enable people to take knowledge in their own hands and it would put creative power in the hands of people instead of, you know, this this whole thing of the Brahminization. And and I mean it in a very generic sense, not in sense of uh, the Brahmin caste in Mm -hmm. in India particularly, but... Yeah, so the, the, the Brahminization of education was that, you know, a few people would hold on to all the knowledge. Mm. And that was the that was a very kind of a Brahminical structure, wasn't it? Yes. Because you came into school, you had nothing, you were, you were an empty slate, so-called, and somebody would pour their knowledge into you. Yeah. And, the, and this would keep happening in bits and parts until you became eligible by way of marks to be categorized a Brahmin or not a Brahmin, you know? So that's been the kind of system of education that we followed all through across the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. And Freire specifically wanted to break that mold. He said mm. the world can only advance if there is creative chaos. And if there is some, there is creative power in the hands of individuals. Because when you give 
the ability to create and the ability to be heard to the mm. poorest person the humblest person you will find that they have something to say and they will find that they have something to say and when they find that they have something to say then the world will change so mm. um i don't know whether we are there <laughs> i don't know whether we are going there we are certainly, certainly we are certainly going there i'm very confident yeah 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 but i think it's yeah i'm very hopeful i think amongst all the the dhinchak pujas and the <laughs> all kinds of content that we get yeah. online there's a lot of absolutely brilliant beautiful things that are emerging mm. and um, yes i mean if if a kid on the street with a mobile phone in his hand can use youtube to teach himself english or can use youtube to teach himself or or he can use instagram to teach himself uh, how to bake or anything i mean that's that's amazing isn't it yeah yeah that's that's how it should be everyone should be able to do all the things that they want to possibilities should be available that's an ideal world right correct correct in fact uh, the way you structured this uh, or the way you you positioned this entire thing of the brahmanical structure we have like i have also similar parallel that initially the mic was with certain elites right from so if you take the media industry it was with certain people the films were made by certain set of nepotism and those kind of setup and then the people like anurag kashyap came in from nowhere and and made people watch their stories and then generations are getting inspired by them so now the mic is almost with everyone because of mobile and because of the internet and uh, yeah very soon yeah but see, even when anurag kashyap was there he was still working with some structures yeah but now you have people making films with iphones yeah yeah or even simpler phones correct 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 yeah that's what so so the now in fact i was listening to one i think kunal kamra and he was saying abhi to hum hamari stories bata rahe hain hum oppressed ki stories bata rahe hain jab oppressed apni stories batane aayenge to to fir like kayamat aane wali hai matlab then it's there is like you are getting directly from the person who has been oppressed yeah so it's a good space but yeah there's a trade off also there which probably is some other conversation all right i think uh, this is a good note but on concluding do you want to give like any message to audio gang listeners about education at large like like one liner which you are always inspired about and how hopeful are you about the future of through through obviously art as a lens but i'm i'm very hopeful about the future of arts as a lens arts as pedagogy but if there's one thing that i'd like to leave the listeners with and something that i'd like them to think about it's that if you reach out to someone with affection and spark some curiosity in their minds you've probably done more to enrich a life than anything you could have done in your whole life so it's something to think about reach out with affection and see if you can spark some curiosity that's it cool on that note thanks a lot manjima it was great talking to you i am thoroughly inspired i'm hoping to do like bunch of uh, more interesting podcast uh, and wish to have you again on audio can sometime but uh, i'd love yeah, to come is... back edar thank you for having me this has been a wonderful conversation okay thank thanks you. a lot thanks and that's it from today's gyan session For show notes and more gyan visit audiogyan.com If you like this podcast please don't forget to check our other interesting podcast on IVM network You can listen to us on IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or any of your favorite podcasting apps To stay tuned follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM podcast and if you wish to connect with me I am at audiogyan moments on Instagram Until then take care It's been a great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On this round is on me. Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish thing, Anish welcomes ultra marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. 
on cock and bull cyrus navin akash and shreyas talk about the korean band bts serving in the military and its repercussions on think fast varun and suchita discuss wing greens and their latest acquisitions and about the indian sexual wellness market and on shuni one shiladatya is joined by dinika bhatia ceo and founder of natigrities they talk about coming from a business family and dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt free snacking Once again don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcast.com we have some exciting new merch out there for you also do follow us on social media we are ivm podcasts on twitter facebook instagram and linkedin and do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to appreciate them rate them and review them wherever you are listening to them you can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com/ivmpodcasts and finally we would like to thank our sponsors this week Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tails, Kotak Privy League Program, and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks, guys. Without you, this would not be possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms, and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya and on our show Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IVM Podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from.